Open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're at. We are uh, really close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We have been going through uh, this sermon, um, was it since September? I think it is. Uh, since, uh, anyway, uh, the fall. And uh, this is one of the most powerful sermons probably ever preached, certainly, uh, w- certainly one of the most powerful sermons ever recorded. Um, but this is, uh, remember, it's towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he's kind of addressing his disciples who maybe had just kind of recognized him as the Christ, and he's preparing them not only for, uh, for what they were going to endure while they were with him, but also for what they, would, what they would be charged with for after he ascended. Remember, because Jesus essentially um, left them with the responsibility of making disciples and and. and planting his church. And, uh, you know, our faith and our, our church here in Billings, Montana is, is a result, is, you know, connected to the chain that the disciples left, that they, they were responsible for the church. And so, Jesus was preparing them, okay? Uh, so, that's what we have. Now, uh, with that, let's, let's read um, Matthew chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 13, and we'll go through verse 20. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much uh, for this morning once again, Lord. And God, we, uh, we praise you and we worship you, Lord. God, we, we thank you that you love us the way that you do. We thank you that, that you are uh, so gracious and that you saved uh, wretched, wretched sinners like us. And God, we pray that we would glorify you this morning. We pray that as, as we uh, look at your word and, and what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that you would grow us in our love and in our faith of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would bring you joy this morning. We pray the same for, for the team downstairs ministering to the kids. We pray that your spirit would work in them and that the gospel would be preached downstairs. Father, we, uh, we bring all glory to you because you're absolutely worthy of it. You are the God of heaven and we are not. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, let's just start off uh, from the beginning, okay? Um, a Christian, let's start with the basics. A Christian is a person who has received by faith Jesus Christ as his or her personal Lord and Savior. What this means is that a Christian recognizes that they are a sinner, that they have failed God, they have rebelled against God, they have pursued their own will, sought their own, their own glory, and rebelled against God. And, and because of that, they are, they are opposed to God. They're separated from Him and, and in need of a Savior. 
And Jesus Christ is that Savior. He, he humbled himself, according to the book of Philippians. He humbled himself, uh, became a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, and eventually laid his life down on the cross to atone for the sins of mankind. That's, that's in a nutshell what Christians believe. Every Christian knows through the Holy Spirit's testimony that he is saved. Right? They, they understand who Jesus is and what he has done and really why he did it, because, uh, because our sins had to be dealt with. Christians understand that part. What Christians, a lot of Christians don't understand is uh, kind of deeper theological truths or, or doctrine, or other things in the Scripture aside from the essential gospel. Right? The gospel is the foundation of our faith. We, we, we believe who Jesus is and, and what he has accomplished for us. But there are other things. There, there are other uh, implications of the gospel. And, and a lot of Christians don't necessarily understand those. Some don't even think they're very important. You know, I, I have to say, I've said this before, but a major flaw in modern churches today is the lack of theology and doctrine, especially evangelical churches. They do great work in uh, evangelism, but uh, too often they neglect theological training. Uh, and again, I've said this before, they're, they're great at knowing Bible stories. Uh, they can tell you um, who David is and who he killed and all of that stuff, but they don't always know what those Bible stories mean because a lot of evangelicals will tell you that the story of David and Goliath is about facing your giants. That's not what David and Goliath is about, in case you're wondering. Um, if you'd like to know what he's about, come next week. Maybe I'll talk about it then. Um, that's not happening, sorry. <laughs> I got sidetracked. Okay, um, they, they don't necessarily know what the Bible stories are about. They're eager to, to get into a fight and demand that the Ten Commandments be, uh, be in a courtroom. But if you ask them where the Ten Commandments are found in the Scriptures, they have no idea. In fact, they're, they're listed twice in the Scriptures. They can't cite either one of them. You ask them to list the Ten Commandments, and they're not necessarily going to know. What they do know is that the Ten Commandments should be posted in a courtroom. And I agree with that, by the way, but I also happen to think that we should know where to find the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we, we know Bible stories, but we don't know what the Bible stories mean. And understanding what they mean is important. This is true of the disciples that Jesus was, was literally talking to, or literally preaching to on the Sermon on the Mount. They had just come to faith. They were, everything was brand new. The world has just been shaken up. And so here's Jesus preparing them and teaching them and instructing them on some other issues. So, as we end the Sermon on the Mount, what we find is Jesus is going to start giving some warnings. We've, we've talked all through what the Sermon on the Mount was about. It, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's wonderful, it's mind-blowing. To be honest with you, I could spend 30 years just going through the Sermon on the Mount and every Sunday preaching from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and it, to me, it would never get old. But as we finish here, Jesus begins to give some warnings and they're, they're pretty significant warnings. Uh, last week, uh, or not last week, two weeks ago, uh, thanks to Ron, by the way, for filling in while I was not here. I, I appreciate that. Jen and I celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary, and so uh, we went away to Bozeman. Uh, yeah, all right. There we go, yeah. 
She hasn't dumped me in 14 years. It's a miracle. Um, so uh, thanks, Ron, for, for filling in for me. But two weeks ago, we talked about judging others and how to do that appropriately and do it in the right way, do it in, in a godly way. And we said that, that that's something that really we, we should run, um, we, should, we should address that filter of judging others almost every day. The same is true here. What Jesus is going to warn us about, we should consider nearly every day. Okay, and so the first thing is a warning about the way of salvation. We get this out of verses 13 and 14. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The Lord is teaching his disciples the real meaning of their salvation. So they'll be prepared to stand strong uh, in a world that hates him. Because remember, Christ is going to ascend into heaven after he rises from the grave. And, and they'll be left there. And, and they'll have to live in a world worshiping Jesus in the midst of a world that hates him. Okay? Christ uses an illustration of two ways or two, two roads uh, with two gates or entrances in front of each road. One is a wide gate and the multitudes are passing through it on the road to destruction. And the other is a narrow gate and only a few are passing through it uh, on, the, on the road to eternal life. And so you have this wide gate and just hundreds of people are just traveling this road, this, this smooth, easy road, and that's where they're going. And then you have this small road with a small gate and just a small number of people are going through really one at a time. And I have to tell you that these two verses have been poorly interpreted uh, by, by so many people. They give the impression that the choices between the broad way, which is fun and exciting, and the narrow way, which is kind of dark and uninviting, uninviting and, and kind of scary. And so uh, the idea is that while we can live this fun, easy life that, that's really entertaining uh, on the way to destruction, or we can kind of go through this dark, scary, dingy road that's intimidating, but it leads to life. That's not what the scriptures are saying. Actually, the opposite is true. The entrance to the way that leads to destruction is really wide, but it narrows down as it goes, and it narrows down to the point of destruction, of condemnation, of eternal separation from God. Of, it, it, where it leads to is God's wrath. That's where it leads. And the other road begins narrow. And you have to go through the gate, which we'll see is Jesus, but it widens up and it's full of joy and light and goodness. There are two gates or entrances to the two roads. The broad gate is human works. This is what it is. Uh, the broad gate is, is human works. It is your morality, your, your plans of trying to reach God on your terms. It is uh, you attempting to put God in your debt. And, and uh, the multitudes are rushing through this broad gate because every man thinks that they are their own judge. In other words, uh, we, say, we say, okay, well, I'm going to live this way. And, and you can look at society and, and you can see it all over the place. You can, I'm going to live this way. This is the way that I think is right. And who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? You have no right to judge me. 
Because every man thinks that they're their own judge. We, we all think that we should be our own judge. Every man thinks that their own good works are what gets them to heaven. If you are separated from Christ, if you are not in Christ, you're relying on your own good works in order to get you to heaven. You're relying on your own good works. But they'll find that the broad gate will ultimately lead to destruction. That's where, that's where it heads. Salvation is not based on man's own good works. It's not based on our morality. Right? You know, our morality is great, and, and I'm, I'm going to encourage you to be a moral person, but that is not what saves you. Salvation comes from God's grace, which is easy to say, but extremely difficult to understand, to fully grasp. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, I think say it um, as crystal clear as possible. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's what God's Word says. The narrow gate is Christ himself, for he is the door to salvation. He, he tells us this in John chapter uh, 10. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus also tells us that he is the only way to God. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's the problem. What we try to do is, is we, we try to take the broad road and go through the wide gate and we try to detour around the narrow gate that is Jesus Christ. We try to say, look, I'm a good person. I do good things. I, you know, I go down to Salvation Army and I feed the poor and I care about my family and I love my wife and I, I care about my neighborhood. And so what we try to do is we try to detour around the narrow gate. We try to detour around Jesus and then go to heaven on our own. And that's not how it works. We can't go around that gate. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to get to heaven. There is no other way to be made right before God except for through Jesus Christ. He is the gate. He is the door. He is the only way. Millions, millions of people throughout history having faith in their, to be honest, millions of people alive today having faith in their own good works, are rushing straight in to destruction, are heading straight for God's wrath. But the narrow gate is like a revolving door, letting one person in at a time. One person, only one person can go through. As we trust in Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, that is the only way to get through the gate. This, by the way, refutes the idea of all religions kind of being different roads to the same destination, or you'll hear maybe, um, you know, all religions, whether it be Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, whatever it is you want to uh, fill in, whatever blank you want to fill there, are just different paths up the same mountain. Jesus says that's garbage. Jesus says that's not true. The, these verses, 13 and 14, tell us that's not how it works. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way, no other way to be made right before God. There is no other way to get to heaven except through Jesus Christ. No other way. 
Christians, um, to be honest, are unusual people. We've made a, a radical turn from, from the world. We're pilgrims or strangers in the world. We leave behind worldly pleasures. We may uh, leave worldly friends or relatives. We may even uh, be persecuted for our Christian faith. Surely we're, go we're going to have to suffer for Christ and stand out from a worldly crowd. Look, the, the wide path, what that's telling us is that more people are headed towards destruction than are headed towards life. And so if we're Christians and we're living for Jesus and we care about Jesus and we're trying to be obedient to Jesus in faith and we care, nothing, uh, we care for nothing more than Jesus Christ and serving him, then we're living in a world that hates him. We should expect opposition. That, that, that should be what we're, what we're, what's common. There's two roads, two gates. There's, there's really kind of two destinies too. Uh, this verse tells us there are... Um, Really, you have two options. It's life or death, heaven or hell. It becomes obvious to anyone with their eyes open that the lost world outnumbers the saved. In fact, true Christians really are, are a tiny minority. Most people in the world will never be saved. But those who hear the gospel and truly repent and believe will be saved. Jesus' point is that the vast majority of people will not be saved. That's what he's saying in these two verses. In Luke 13, a group of Jews asked Christ, they say, are, are there few that will be saved? Is it really that few that are going to be saved? Jesus responds in Luke chapter 13, verse 24. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. God and God alone knows how many and who will be saved. And, and uh, it is not my business or yours to try to figure out how many people are going to be saved or, or, or who that might be. It is our job to be obedient to him. It is our job to worship him. It is our job to share the gospel, declare that message with the world. That's our job. Not to try to figure out who's going to be saved, not to try to figure out you know, when Christ is going to return or any of that stuff. It's to worship him and share the gospel. Submit to the scriptures. That's a life of a Christian. And so Jesus essentially says, look, uh, the number of people that are going to be saved is very few. It is not the majority, it's the minority. That's the first warning. This next warning is going to be a warning about false teachers. In verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Christ, um, Christ wants to warn his disciples about false teachers uh, who lead people down the wrong way. There will always be false teachers. Until the Lord returns and, and, and we're in glory, there will be false teachers. As long as sin exists, there will be false teachers. And Christians must be continually on alert for them. Right? We have to be ready for them. We have to know how to identify them. Right? Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Second Peter chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there, 
just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. One of the things we're going to do in our uh, group study guide, you got a study guide, um, it's either in your bulletin or out on the the Welcome Center, um, is that essentially this week's study guide is how to identify false prophets, false teachers, because we need to understand how to do that. These are not the only verses that address false prophets. In fact, if you read the New Testament at all, you'll see uh, constantly throughout uh, Paul's epistles, the letters to churches, he's addressing different false teachers or, or the impacts of false teachers. He's constantly trying to correct these churches or correct these different groups uh, to bring them back to the true gospel. Here's the thing. The Broadway tells us that most people that are alive are not going to come to Christ. They're not going to repent of their sins. So it's also fair to say that there will be many false teachers, right? They'll be numerous. They'll be everywhere. Here's the thing. These false teachers, they're, they're subtle because they use language that, that seems like it, it fits into biblical Christianity. They do everything to appear like sheep, like a Christian. Now, these false teachers may be educated. They might call themselves pastor or bishop or, or whatever. Right? They're, they're going to identify themselves as Christians. The false teachers, they sound great, and they use terms that are used, by, uh, used in Scripture, even in the Gospel. They may talk about God or, or even Jesus. They might emphasize the love of God, which is done often. They seem to be saying that Christians... Uh, Christians should say, um, or excuse me, they, they, they say things that, that Christians should say. But upon further examination, you find that their false teaching is not in what they say, but what they don't say and what they leave out of their messages. A false prophet or teacher is one who leaves out this idea of the narrow gate. Right? There's nothing in the message of the of the false prophet that offends a sinful man, that addresses sin, that addresses repentance. In fact, his teachings are going to tell the sinner not to worry because God loves you. God God loves you and, and, and he would never do anything to harm you, which in a way is true and it sounds correct, but if you're a sinner in opposition to God, then you're headed towards his wrath. The false teacher is going to make the sinner comfortable. It's going to make the, the sinner feel solid in where he's at. He, he's, going to, he's, going to, um, he's going to lift him up and encourage him to remain on the path that he's on. You never hear him teach on the holiness of God. You never hear him preach about righteousness or, or God's justice or God's wrath, which all are a part of biblical Christianity. In fact, his teachings, again, tell the sinner not to worry. He never talks about the wickedness of sin or or the the total inability of man to do anything about his own salvation. It would be unthinkable for him to preach on the final judgment and the eternal destiny of hell for the lost. Repentance is not stressed. 
Neither, neither is the death of Christ spoken as, as kind of a substitute uh, for the sinner and, and his sin. Again, why is he a false prophet? Because, because there's no way of teaching the narrow way in his false gospel. His message is, is, is not challenging the sinner to repent. It's embracing the sinner to remain how he is. How different is their gospel than the true gospel that, that Paul preached, for example. The false teacher is, is telling the sinner, don't worry. You, you, you are who you are, and that's okay, and, and, and just stay that way. Stay on the wide road. And the apostle Paul is calling people to repent. The apostle Paul is being stoned and beaten. He's saying, Jesus is the only way. Repent of your sins. Turn away. Change your mind about God. That's what repent means. Change your mind about God. Deal with your sins. Seek forgiveness of your sins. The false teacher says, don't worry about it. You're okay. You're okay. You know, I want to, uh, I, I want to stop here and say something. And, and I tried to make a video uh, this week of some of these uh, nut job false teachers saying crazy things but I'm not very good with the computer and this stuff, and so I, I can't do fancy stuff like Alex does. Um, so we're just going to talk about it a little bit. Right? There are false teachers all over the place. Right? In America today, there are false teachers all over the place. On TV, on the internet, on the radio, they're, they're all over, and they're, they're doing their thing. Um, they're teaching heresy that sounds biblical but is wicked. They're teaching um, te these teachings from, and I'm just going to name a, a few of them. This is not an exhaustive list. But, uh, you know, if you're listening to the, to the teachings of people like, you know, Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Keith Hagen, Joel Osteen, Todd White, Bethel Church, it just, it's, there's others, but it, uh, it, you couldn't, I couldn't get the video together on time, but here's, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that Jesus is not going to make you wealthy. Right? If you follow Jesus, like if, you, if you come to, to Jesus, that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be wealthy. Jesus never promised that. It, it's nowhere in Scripture that you will be a wealthy person if you come to Jesus. Following Jesus does not guarantee you that you will be healthy either. The message of the gospel and really of the entirety of Scripture is not that in following him everything goes right. The message is that he is enough no matter what happens. That's the thing. He is enough regardless of how difficult your life is. And if you read Scripture at all, you see that, that the faithful men and women of Scripture, the ones, the prophets and the, and the apostles, uh, their lives were difficult. The, the lives of the prophets and of the apostles, I couldn't bear, I don't think. I, I don't think I could last. Look, the message is Jesus is enough. That's the message. It's, the message is not that everything is going to be okay in this life. When we're thinking about eternity in the long-term picture, yes, everything is going to be great and everything is going to be wonderful. In Christ, we will be with him and there will be no sin. But in this life, the promise is not that everything will be okay. In fact, it's essentially guaranteed that everything will not be okay because sin exists in this world and pain exists in this world. And it's awful and it drives me crazy 
that the prosperity gospel is so popular because in order to believe it, you have to completely disregard Jesus' preeminence. You have to disregard how wonderful and great he is. Because in order to believe the prosperity gospel, what you have to do is you say, yeah, Jesus is great, but I want what he can give me more. I, 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 want, I want what he offers. I don't care about him. I care about what he can give me. I want to be wealthy more than I want to be with Jesus. I want to be healthy more than I want to be with Jesus. I don't care about Jesus' glory. I care about what he can give me. And that should outrage you. It should outrage you. If you're a Christian and you claim to love Jesus and you claim to be a biblical Christian, it should drive you crazy that there are people in our country leading people astray with this garbage because it's, it's happening all over the place. Look, every apostle in the Bible dies and they die bad. The only one that, that church tradition doesn't really say died in a horrible, violent way is the apostle John. But we also know that the apostle John was boiled in oil and he just didn't happen to die. Okay, so the Apostle John did not have an easy life. The apostles uh, were beheaded. They were crucified. They were boiled in oil. Uh, they die poor and they die violently. And they did it because they're faithful, wonderful men. They didn't do it because they were hoping to be wealthy or healthy. Okay, Charles Spurgeon, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. He's an incredible, faithful pastor who lived about 150 years ago. He struggled with depression his entire life until he died in 1892. His entire life he struggled with depression. God spread Christianity throughout the last 20 centuries on the blood of men, not on their wealth, right? And we can't get caught up in this garbage that Jesus promises us wealth because he doesn't. He doesn't. That's never a promise, right? It's absurd. It's an absurd idea when, we fo when our focus is not on Christ, our focus should be on Jesus Christ, not on what Jesus can give me. That is the point. The point is Jesus. The prize is Jesus. When we come to faith, when we repent of our sins, when we worship him, what we get is Jesus. We don't get a big bank account. We don't get a happy, easy life. We get Jesus, and we get Jesus for eternity. That's what we get. Jesus is enough. When you care more about what Jesus can give you than you care about Jesus himself, it's not Christianity, it's idolatry. And the problem is, is that we have these people who are teaching and preaching this stuff, and it sounds like Christianity, but what they're doing is they're leading people into idolatry. And it's filth, and it's disgusting, and it's hated by Jesus. It drives me crazy. Jesus is enough. It's fine. If you're struggling with something, it's fine to pursue healing. It's fine to pray for healing. And maybe you get it, but maybe you don't because Jesus didn't promise it. But if you don't get that healing that you want, Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's more than enough because the prize is not healing. The prize is Jesus. That's the message. You remember the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, we did it a year ago, a year and a half ago, something like that. The apostles uh, are preaching, and essentially the, the leaders of their day, they say, if you don't stop preaching, uh, we're going to beat you to death. That's what's going to happen. And what do the apostles do? Do the apostles say, uh, you know, okay, we'll submit? No. They essentially say, look, we can't contain it. You do what you need to do, but we can't contain this message. And do you know what happens? They're beaten nearly to death. They're beaten uh, nearly to death. They survive it. And do you know what they do when they come out? 
Do they say, well, I guess we shouldn't have done that. I guess this isn't, I guess God wasn't leading us to preach in the temple. I guess we were, I guess we were wrong. After they endure that beating, they rejoice. They rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That's the fruit of the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel in their life. It's, it's not about what Jesus gets you. It's about Jesus himself, his glory, his preeminence, his excellence. It's about worshiping him, not about what you get from him. Do not worship what you can get from Jesus. Do not worship that you can somehow have, have this, uh, you can get this extra stuff if you just uh, live a moral life or you just attend church a certain amount of times. That's ridiculous. He's enough. And these guys who teach otherwise are nothing more than charlatans. They've, they've prostituted themselves, uh, not only themselves, but their followers. And they've done it for wealth or for glory or for influence or whatever it is that they crave. They're wicked. And they're leading people astray by the thousands. And we're living in a day when, when people say that as long as a man claims to be a Christian at all, we should regard him as a brother. But Christ says, beware of false prophets. Because the false prophets are going to claim to be Christians. So many people are deceived because those who deny the essential doctrines of the Christian faith are accepted as brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 13, says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This leads us into the final warning of this passage. The nature of salvation is what he's warning us. In verses 16 to 20, it says this, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. A problem uh, would naturally arise if false teachers look like true sheep. The question is, how do we identify them? Uh, how, how do we identify these, these people that are they're false prophets and leading people astray? How can we tell if they're really sheep or wolves? And Jesus gives us that answer. He says, by their fruit. You can tell the false from what is true by what they produce in their lives. Their fruit will be consistent with who they are, right? When Jesus says, do men gather grapes from thorns? In Palestine, there's a, cert yeah, excuse me, a certain thorn, a certain thorn that had a little blackberry which looked like a grape, Okay. And when he says, do men gather figs from thistles, uh, there was a thistle which had this certain flower that from a distance looked like it was a fig. And so uh, you could confuse it. Christ is saying that the appearance of a false teacher is only superficial. Uh, as you examine them and you look closer, uh, he's not going to be found as a true teacher because you can tell by their fruits. By fruit, 
what Jesus is talking about is their false teaching as well as their false works. The test is by words and works. When God saves an individual, when, when you and I were, were saved, when we came to Christ, we were transformed. We, and the scriptures actually says we're a new creation. Something is different about us. Maybe you've heard the term born again. Something changes. When you come to Christ, something changes. You want to live for Christ. You want to glorify him. You want to be obedient to him. You want to do the things that bring him glory and honor. That's not so with a false teacher. The false teacher wants to do things that bring themselves glory and honor. That's what happens. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruits of the Spirit. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's how we know. The fruits of the Spirit. Now, do you see anywhere on here where it says, Holy laughter? Like I, I, was, I was researching these false teachers and there's, there are these different churches or denominations and now what they believe is that when you come to Christ and the Spirit and dwells within you, what happens is you have these laughing fits and you can go to get on the, the computer and see these guys and they just they have these fake crazy laughs that really sound evil. Or they have these, uh, they'll fall over and it almost looks like they're having a seizure, right? And they're, they're shaking and uh, they, they claim that they're under control of the Holy Spirit. The problem is that Galatians 5, 22 says, or excuse me, 23 says self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It doesn't say that you'll lose control. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit will make you lose control, right? So the fruits of the Spirit are how we know. We'll know them by their fruit. And we see here Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruits of the Spirit. This is how it is. The unsaved man has only an old nature, a sinful self, while this nature can do good things, it only brings fruit that glorifies himself. That's how you spot a false teacher. Jesus speaks of two trees, a good one and a corrupt one, and each one brings uh, fruit in accordance with its nature. As a man thinks, so he's, he's going to become. The real inner nature of a person is bound to come out. It's going to happen. A man's belief is going to come out sooner or later in his life. False teachers and these pseudo-Christians will soon declare themselves by their fruits. Their words and works will come out. True Christians and true teachers who have a, a new nature from God will demonstrate with their words and their works that they are in the narrow way to eternal life. They will demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. That's what the Scriptures tell us. Christ has, has given two warnings in this passage. Essentially, beware of false prophets who are going to teach a false message. They exist and they always will exist. And to be certain to enter into the narrow gate, to understand that you are, you are in, that you have entered not on your own works, but through Christ. Christ is the gate. Enter into the narrow gate which leads to eternal life. And he's making an invitation for you to, to essentially go through that gate. And so then my natural question is, 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 have you done that? Have you accepted Christ? Have you submitted to Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Do you trust in Jesus as the Savior, as the only one who could save you from your sins? 
Not because you think that he'll make you wealthy, not because you think that that you'll be healed of something, but because Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is your prize. Have you done that? If you haven't done that or you just have questions about it, I'd love to talk to you after the service. I'd love to, I'll stand over at the prayer wall as Alex closes out. And if you have questions about it or you'd like to open up scripture or you'd like to pray, I'd love to talk to you over there. But Jesus gives two warnings. Be careful of false teachers and ensure you have entered through the narrow gate. The gate is Jesus Christ. Ensure that you have entered through faith, essentially, into God's family. This message is powerful. These warnings are serious because they have serious implications. But they apply to us even 2,000 years after they were originally spoken. False teachers were present 2,000 years ago. They're present today. And they lead people astray, even though they use the same vocabulary that you and I might. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning, Lord. Thank you for, uh, God, thank you for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. And we thank you that, um, we thank you that through Christ we have salvation, that through Christ that we have been saved from the sins that we committed. God, we know that, that we are incapable of saving ourselves and, and we, we can't do it. But God, we, we also know that, that you have done it for us. And Jesus Christ humbled himself and lived a sinless life and laid, laid that life down on the cross. And he defeated the grave so that we can be with you for all of eternity. God, I pray that each one of us would see Jesus as the prize, that we would worship him, that we, that we would be overwhelmed by the fact that we get him, that we get to have a relationship with him. And that we wouldn't turn to you so that you give us something. We wouldn't convince ourselves that you made a promise that we'll be healed or that we'll be healthier, that we'll be wealthier, that, that something will be restored. God, we pray that, that we would worship you and that we would love you and that we would take joy in the fact that you have, you have adopted us as sons and daughters. Father, if there's someone here who's not done that yet, I pray that you would convict them of their sin. I pray that you would reveal that sin to them and their need, their desperate need for a Savior. God, I, I would love the opportunity to share the gospel with them and to pray with them and explain who Jesus is and why that matters. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.